Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Bucciolato, with my partner in crime, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And uh, we're super excited for our uh, guest this episode, Ben Westhoff, very accomplished writer. He worked for Rolling Stone magazine, has some best-selling books out there that we'd like to talk about. One of his more recent books, Fentanyl Inc., is uh, super important. It's um, award-winning text. It's getting a lot of praise. Came out a couple of years ago, but it's um, about you know a really important topic out there, and we we hope to, to touch upon that book. But we actually the the reason that that we wanted Ben on is actually a book that he wrote earlier, which is Original Gangsters, Tupac Shakur, Dr. Dre, Easy Ice Cube, and the Birth of West Coast Rap. So Ben, thanks for the original gangster joining the original gangsters podcast. <laughs> Well, great to be on, and it's a great name, I gotta say. Yeah, thank, thank you. I thought I was the OG author, no, but actually Ben is the original, original OG author. <laughs> yeah, and we're and, um, we're big fans of. I mean, Scott and I are big music fans in general. And I, I know Ben, you are too. So we like everything from. We're in Detroit. We like Motown. We like rock, punk, metal, electronic music, but we're also big fans of hip hop, and especially this topic that you're writing about West coast. Um, I have a strong West coast bias. I've lived, I've lived in San Diego, Arizona, Seattle. So I've got a strong West coast bias when it comes to hip hop with all due respect to Wu Tang. And I, and I (laughs) myself, I mean, I think all three of us share a similar story. We're not, we might not all be the same exact age. We all grew up in the same era as, you know, young white suburbanites that fell in love with hip hop and, and, and rap music and I'm going to turn it over to Ben in one second. But, you know, I was just like JB, you know, I was really born and raised on West Coast hip hop, starting with NWA through, you know, the Chronic and Snoop Dogg and West Coast Connection and all that stuff. And it was so influential for me. I, I, I attached so many of my memories of early adolescence to hip hop music and connecting with it. And this book just resonated with me in such a, a major way. This is the Bible yeah. when it comes to learning and exploring the root of, of hip hop on the West coast and just illuminating this fabulous and fascinating complex terrain. One of the reviews of the book, you know, spoke about how he did such an amazing job telling the story. And, you know, you didn't know really who the heroes are, who the villains are. Sometimes the hero is the villain. Sometimes the villain is the hero. Yeah, it's complicated. A lot of anti-heroes. So, Ben, please come on board and, and tell us what your inspiration for writing this book was. Well, thank you guys for that nice introduction. Yeah, the same with me. Uh, starting in high school, this was just like the soundtrack to our school, you know, um, it was, I come from Minnesota, so it doesn't get a lot wider than that, but, you know, it seemed like all of the music we listened to was coming out of South Central and Compton. And, um, I think Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style was like the biggest, biggest album at my school. I mean, it was all over the country, but, um, you know, before that, the chronic was, was really big for us too. I think I was maybe a little young to get into NWA in its heyday, but um, the chronic was just like the perfect sort of vehicle for this sound. And, um, you know, and then you also had movies like Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, and it all felt like, you know, this culture coming out of South Los Angeles. Again, you know, we were in the cold, frozen North. It had like little or nothing to do with the lives we were living, but we just felt like we could relate somehow. Well, NWA was so raw, and Ben, I I might have been too young to appreciate, you know, the cultural significance. But I'm I'm talking about when I was ten years old, eleven years old. We were sneaking my, you know, my my older cousins or my friends, you know, uh, brothers would, you know, sneak us a tape of straight out of Compton, um, and we would go off, you know, uh, away from the adults, whether we'd be in, in, in elementary school or a junior high or, or heading towards junior high school at that point or at a family event. And we kind of like it, it you know, it was almost like you know, our own little speakeasy, but instead of drinking 11 oh, yeah. year olds, instead of drinking alcohol, we're consuming Easy E and MC Ren and, and Dr. Dre. So, you know, I was really young too. I wasn't a teenager really consuming that 
early NWA. I was 10, 11, 12 years old, but it, it blew my mind and opened up the doors to the chronic and all the Warren G stuff, all the Nate Dog stuff. Uh, Ice Cube is just a, a, a genius. Easy E, even a- after uh, they all went, you know, in their separate directions. Uh, I, I love the the stuff they did, uh, you know, on their own. Uh, ben, talk about, you know, you, you mentioned Doggy Style, you know, really connecting with with uh, that album and Snoop Dogg. Uh, in terms of writing this book, where did it all? You know who was the artist or the uh, the 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 people in the industry that really helped the genesis of, of telling the story? Well, I became the music editor at LA Weekly in 2011, so you know it that job gave me access to all of my like childhood heroes. It was amazing. Like one after another, I got invited to interview Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg, Warren G. You know, like uh, I, I talked to uh, MC Ren on Palm Springs where he had moved. It's just like almost all of the major players I got to interview through these other channels. So like Dr. Dre started this new program at USC with Jimmy Iovine. And on the occasion of their like $70 million donation, I got to interview him, both of them actually, and sort of get my foot in the door. Um, Ice Cube was promoting uh, Coors Light. So I interviewed him under those auspices uh, at first. Snoop Dogg was promoting this brand of Swedish socks called Happy Socks, which is totally bonkers. And he was like smoking a blunt while modeling socks and like doing this abstract painting. And uh, and so it um, and then an Ice T. I had a really long sit down with Ice T. He had a film coming out. Uh, what was it called? The Art of the MC or something like that. Really good documentary. Uh, by the way, I just want to say I was remiss for not mentioning Ice-T's name in my previous indexing of all the all-time great uh, West Coast rappers because, it, you know, you could probably— He predates— You the could probably NWA trace guys. all of the history of gangster rap directly to Ice-T. Is, yeah. is that an overstatement? No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, he, without—you uh, know, there was Schooly D, of course, from Philadelphia, and then, you know, and then Ice-T— but but without those guys, there is no Boys in the Hood song. And, you know, without the Boys in the Hood song, there is no Easy NWA and really gangster rap as we know it. So, yeah, Ice-T is an interesting character because he actually grew up on the East Coast, you know, just like Tupac. You know, who are more West Coast than Ice-T and Tupac? But they actually grew up on the East Coast. And Ice-T lived in this town called Summit, New Jersey, where I ended up living. It's kind of like uh, where I ended up living at one point in my early 30s. It's kind of like this little bedroom community, just like posh, so wealthy. Uh, you would have never imagined that Ice-T lived there before he came to South Central. You know, I want to ask you, speaking of Ice-T, and he has uh, Body Count, which is a gnarly heavy metal band that I, I really like. And I, I was I wanted to ask Ben if, if you've ever thought about this in terms of why this music would speak to you know, kids like us, like uh, white kids growing up in the suburbs, like really detached from South Central in, in every way, socially, economically, regionally. And I don't know if it's a social thing or brain chemistry thing, but I've my first love has always been heavy metal and punk. And there was something about listening to Straight Out of Compton, like it hit the same like nerves in my brain, like that kind of music, Public Enemy, NWA. Like I'm telling you, if you would have done some brain mapping, the brain chemistry that I, that I was hitting from listening to, like, Minor Threat or, like, Slayer or whatever, like, it, it was the same. You know, it was so extreme and so raw. You ever, you ever thought about, like, some of the, like, how that worked? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, hardcore punk and Black Flag and all these Southern California bands were coming out uh, around the same time. And then on sort of the other end of the spectrum, there was, like, Prince and Morris Day and all the sort of more melodic um, stuff with the almost like gender bending. And so in a way, the um, the West Coast gangster rap of this era combined both aesthetics. I mean, everyone knows in World Class Wrecking Crew that Dr. Dre was wearing makeup and, you know, wearing stretch pants and stuff like that. You know, and that was kind of the Prince influence. 
and their sound was really more melodic, obviously a lot more melodic than the hardcore punk that, of that era. But they brought that attitude, you know, and that is, I think, what appealed to kids like us is like, you can tell the real from the fake, you know, it was an era of the music industry was highly commercialized. It was highly sort of like consultant driven. And here come these guys sort of busting down the door and saying like, we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about. I mean, they couldn't get a record deal NWA for that exact reason. Their sound was too raw, but they knew, I mean, that's what made them geniuses is that they knew there was an appetite for this. They knew that kids wanted to hear like unfiltered talk about what was really happening. And the and like the, the skits they would have in between the songs were just brilliant. And you know, we're talking about I'm talking about NWA here. Uh, just what a dream team lineup and how they complemented each other, both vocally, uh, image wise. They they all had such distinct styles between Dre, Ren, Yella, uh, Cube, and it it just it, it was such a force of nature. Um, it was so unfiltered, it, and like you said, it just it connected with a lot of different people, and, and the people it connected with, I don't think you could have necessarily predicted that. Uh, no, it's when like that, serendipity, when that, right? When it's that like, when uh, that music launched. Sorry to interrupt, but like. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here. Like George and John and Paul all happening to live in the you know, mm -hmm. similar neighborhood and like, yeah. the, like the, 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 the um, planets aligning right or the stars aligning right. Yeah. And I mean, I think about NWA and, or excuse me, I think about Easy e And like when I was, you know, in ninth grade and my friend put on Easy Boys in the Hood and then those like Easy solo songs. I mean, it was just like something in my, my, my head kind of exploded. It was like, here was a guy who had this like high pitched voice that shouldn't have been as terrifying as it was. And everything he was, he was talking about just seemed like kind of scary and thrilling at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, the dream team, you had Ice Cube who really, you know, they were all young and they were trying on different personas. But ultimately, Ice Cube philosophically was like very different from Easy and yeah. Dr. Dre. I mean, Easy and Dre, they wanted to make money. You know, they wanted to like, um, they they were kind of nihilistic. They didn't have these values. They weren't trying to like tell a story about empowerment. Um, whereas Ice Cube, he had activism in his family, and he w became more and more obsessed with not just like shocking people but trying to um bring his message across cube was like the george harrison in my opinion dre and easy e were paul and john and then cube is the one that kind of was hidden in the background at the onset but as the years you know went on and the sound evolved and pop culture evolved cube almost be you know not, and this is all due respect to dre easy e is you know passed away in the '90s, and Dre's become a a, a brilliant businessman, a uh, billionaire with the with the the AirPods and the and the joining forces with Jimmy Iovine. But if you look at a total body of work as an artist, I mean, uh, Ice Cube's is is just immaculate uh, from being a you know uh, an actor, director, producer, you know, spitting fire. Uh, as an MC on his solo, uh, his solo tracks. Yeah, he's prolific, but it it is interesting though, and you even point this out, Ben, in the book that there's, you can tell the difference between Straight Out of Compton and the follow up record that the follow up record is. I totally, love. I love the follow up. Oh, oh, so do I. But it's totally nihilistic. It's been, like Ice Cube yeah. added a little bit more social consciousness. Yeah, I know. No, social I know. protest, and you, that's really missing. You so for people that don't know, let's just kind of spoon feed some people. Yeah. Because uh, we we can't assume that everyone that's listening to this is as much of a hip hop right. head as we are. Uh, so Ice Cube had left the group, uh, and then Easy E had a number of solo endeavors uh, around that same time. Um, those albums were so seminal. Um, can you kind of talk about how you saw that the, you know, the foundation that was being laid by NWA, uh, 
Uh, obviously, they had their own in, in, internal acrimony, which which led that group to only really be a group for two what, full two, length two, records. Yeah, two, well, only two, three. Well, in Cube wasn't even on the second round. No. Right. Uh, so yeah, it was, it's, NWA is weird like that because people think of the classic lineup yeah. as being Dre, Easy, Cube, Ren, Yella. Don't forget but about those five were never, you know, just them on an album together. Right. Because the first album had Arabian Prince. I, know, I was about to say, shout out Arabian you know, Prince. He was like, he was like an electro DJ who was already popular before NWA came out. But like when when NWA invigorated the gangster rap sound they like single-handedly made arabian prince obsolete you know and so he he was quickly out of there and then uh he, and then ice cube left over a money dispute and so in the meantime dr dre sort of really developed his sound so like the first album you know straight out of Compton sounds amazing but if you listen to public enemy you know it's easy to see that it's kind of a, it's kind of like stealing the style of the Bomb Squad, who are end up, who are Public Enemy's producers. And Dre himself says he can't stand that album, and he put it together in like six weeks or something. So over the next few years, he got into what was really his own sound, and that most characteristic is how he sampled the the Funky Worm from the Ohio Players, and that's the really high pitched mini moog sound that sounds like futuristic and scary sort of at the same time and that makes its debut on their uh their second album which you know we should probably call ethel for zagan <laughs> yeah uh and uh and and then that goes on to inform the chronic and that's like the most famous sound on the chronic so meanwhile dre was just like honing and honing and honing his sound and like you said he he became like the greatest ear in hip hop music. And I, I like to, I do like to compare it to Paul McCartney because, you know, Paul McCartney is is thought of as kind of like the happy love song guy. And maybe his lyrics weren't as sort of uh profound all the time or as at least as political as John's were. But he but he could just create these symphonies in his head and he immediately knew if the sound was working, you know, not just for himself but producing other people. And, you know, lyrically, Dre has never really been much. I mean, Paul McCartney at least writes his own songs. Dre has almost never written his own songs. He's had, like, the best ghostwriters in the business, including we should also give a shout to D.O.C. Oh, who, uh, so underrated. Dallas. So underrated. Yeah. He, you know, he, he came from Dallas to live out in um, southern Los Angeles, and he had never been around gang culture. He didn't know what Southern California life was like. And yet he was ghostwriting for NWA, for Easy e for Dr. Dre. And, um, you know, and then you had uh, Cube ghostwriting for, for Dre. Later, Eminem was ghostwriting for Dre. So um, that's kind of his evolution. I, um, I actually tried to reach out to DOC on Twitter, but he didn't respond. <laughs> well, like I like to interview I, him on the show, but. <laughs> tying, it back in, tying it back into the book here, I thought one of the you know, there's so many highlights of this book and you do such an amazing job of fleshing out these stories and these anecdotes and um, putting it under a microscope to, to really explain the era and get into the nooks and crannies that you can't necessarily get in in a, you know, just a normal magazine article or, a, or, a, or even, even in an interview. But I really liked how you, and it was the first time that I really understood it or it crystallized in my mind of how important the DOC was. And you devote uh, a nice uh, piece of property here in your book to explaining to everybody that, you know, the DOC wasn't just a background player. Uh, he was instrumental um, in, in creating the sound that we all fell in love with. Uh, he had a, a, a solo endeavor. Which um, is a very good Which is really too. good. Yeah. And uh, I just really liked how you were able to give him props uh, in this book. And for someone like me, who considers myself a student of this stuff, it was something that if you would have presented to me, I would have been like, yeah, that's totally true. But it wasn't something that immediately sprang to mind when you thought about that era. So can you kind of talk about how you were able to, to give that uh, narrative? And, and did, you talk, did you get to interview him? 
Yeah, actually, right when I got to Los Angeles, I was able to do an interview with him, you know, very soon. He, he has his home base in Dallas, where he's like co-parents with Erica Badu, with whom he has a kid. But he spends a lot of time in L.A., and he, he still works closely with Dre. And so he was out at Dre's studio in uh, the Valley, and we had Mexican food together. And, you know, he talks in this, like, super raspy voice. And in the book, I compared it to, it almost sounds like a smoker's voice box, you know, <laughs> someone who, who uses, I mean, it sounds really strange. And the tragedy of DOC is that he did have this amazing album, you know, No One Can Do It Better. And um, it was like a huge seller. It was kind of like the West Coast answer to Rakim in a way. He was like, the, he was a spitter. You know, and but he sort of got too caught up in his own success and um, he became an alcoholic, was like using drugs really heavily. And one day on the long drive, one night he was after filming two videos in the same day, he was drunk and high and spun off the road. And um, he was in this bad car accident and the, um, the medics tried to intubate him, I think, put like a breathing tube down his throat but he was so drunk, he like battled with them. And so it ended up scarring his, his larynx, I believe. And so he lost his, his ability to speak and his ability to rap. So it's just one of the biggest tragedies of all time. Yeah. Because he, yeah, he's super talented and uh, I, I love that solo record as well. Um, let me ask you, I know we're jumping all over the place here a little bit in that book, but um, I wanted to go back to this idea of this split between like ice cube uh, at least having some sense of social protest and, and social consciousness. And you talk about this in your book, and it's really interesting, I think, that that Easy e and even Dre, to an extent, like, pushed back against that, at least in, in like, interviews. I, I don't know if it was, like, sort of conscious, but, like, at least in interviews, like, Easy e you talk about is more of, like, if anything, he's more of, like, a shock rocker. Like, he he was, like, like we're just out to, like, like shock you and and like if you like it or if you don't like it politically whatever i don't really care uh and then dre's thing was like yeah we just want to sell records and i think that's a really interesting narrative in your book this like um i don't know if you would say uh, a juxtaposition or dichotomy or whatever between the more social empowerment of cube and, the, and then even ren gets into that later but and 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 dre and easy which it seems like they didn't really embrace that or want anything to do with that can you talk about that ben yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of this stuff has been whitewashed, but you know, there's all this stuff with like Easy making fun of Rodney King and saying stuff like he doesn't care about the apartheid protests, you know, because South Africa had apartheid at the t at the time, and he's like, you know, when have people ever done protests for Compton and things like that? And um, you know, originally Ice Cube had the song "Fuck the Police," and Dr. Dre um, didn't really want to do it at first. In fact, he was kind of worried that, because he had his own case, he was like, I'm not sure if he was going back and forth um, to jail yet, but he had some, some matters with the police. And But then there was an incident that happened on the Harbor Freeway, and I'm, I'm like 90% certain that this happened after they'd been playing paintball one day, Easy and Dre and some of them, and they were sticking paintball guns out the window on the freeway and like shooting paintballs at other cars. And so they got pulled over by the police and like put on the ground and all sorts of stuff happened. And so after that, Dre was like, good, let's do this song now. Fuck the police. Do you think, um, if we could get a little bit postmodern here, do you think it is it is it really more important what audiences think? So like, for example, even if easy wasn't really like embracing it from like a, a meta narrative of anti-racism, anti-authoritarianism. But like, if you look at a band like rage against the machine, they cite NWA as a huge influence. Like, does it, does it, is it more important that the, that audiences receive it? We receive it as social protest move, uh, music, even if Dre and easy didn't necessarily embrace it that politically, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think like, the most important sort of protest uh, art comes from the heart. You know, it's not like, you know, we we hate Donald Trump and we're going to try to get Donald Trump out of office or it's, it doesn't come from a place of politics. You know what I mean? It comes from like a place of true like repression 
And so to me, that's why Fuck the Police is like the best protest song of all time. And it's certainly the most impactful. I mean, I don't even think there's an argument. There's like literally thousands, every rapper, you know, says fuck the police now. You know, during all these big protest movement, like in movements like in Ferguson, uh, outside St. Louis, where I'm from, um, people are yelling that out the window, you know, the LA riots. And, and that's because it's like, it just distills this sentiment that people have been feeling for so long. And, you know, all the rest of it sort of washes away when you've got this real kernel of truth there. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, I, I would agree with that. Um, I wanted to also ask you um, something that we're very interested here at the Original Gangsters podcast is these moments where um, either musicians or artists who are, um, writing about rapping about uh, the underworld and when sometimes the actual people from the underworld (laughs) and they interact with each other. And so that's something that's really interesting in your book too. Right. And uh, I've reported at the uh, reported about this story at length uh, and I've used Ben's reporting um, as a lot of my source material. Um, But for people that don't know, uh, Death Row Records was owned and financed by a very notorious L.A. drug kingpin by the name of Harry O., whose real name was Michael Harris. And he was in prison up until a couple months ago when he was pardoned uh, by our uh, former president, Donald Trump. Uh, and he, the, the perception was that Suge Knight was the, the final say in, in death row uh, affairs, but in reality, Suge Knight had a boss and that boss was Harry O and Harry O while he was incarcerated, um, when he financed death row records was still having quite a voice from behind bars. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's very impressive. Yeah. Not a lot of people know that. Um, I think most people think of Suge Knight as the ultimate gangster, you know, but, but the truth is that Suge Knight was not even in a gang, you know, when he was coming up in, Compton, he was thought of as like the college kid and he went to UNLV and played football there. And, and, um, Harry O came up in Houston and became one of the biggest drug kingpins in the country. And he had like sort of dozen, you know, tons of other businesses that were, um, laundering his money and he, his empire stretched all, you know, all sorts, all different parts of the country. And in LA, he made these connections and ultimately got imprisoned in LA. And so he and Suge shared a lawyer whose name was David Kenner. And that's how they began communicating. And not only did Harry O give 1.5 million uh, to start death row, but he also sort of consulted with them and helped Suge understand what kind of music would appeal and what, how to make like, gangster rap music really and and he talked to a lot of guys behind bars and he would say this is what the guys in the streets like this is what people want to want to want to hear about this is what it's really like in in the gang's lifestyle and and uh tell me this was post and just for the this was right after nwa NWA, right let's kind of uh you know push the timeline here uh you know ice t nwa came out in the 80s right and then as we got into the 90s and NWA was breaking up, right. uh, Dr. Dre ended up hooking up with Suge Knight and Harry O and creating Death Row, which really became the quintessential uh, gangster rap label and, yeah. and brought gangster rap to the masses. Uh, tell me if this uh, anecdote is true. Um, I'm not sure if I got it from you or I've got it from um, law enforcement contacts I have. Uh, where I, I get my hands on a lot of uh, federal files and surveillance logs and so forth. I believe there was a videotaped toast to Harry O at the death row launch party in yeah, late Chase, 91. Chase, yeah. In Beverly Hills. Yeah. Where, so it was yeah, like, they absolutely. were, they were openly saying to the people that were congregating to celebrate the launch of this label, they weren't hiding the fact that one of the shot callers was behind bars and they were doing a toast to him to kind of honor him. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the feds were watching. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the invitations for that party were designed to look like subpoenas. <laughs> and they, they wanted to make sure, you know, all the industry bigwigs were there. And Hario's wife um, named Lydia Harris was supposed to be a singer on Death Row. And that was that was also part of what was going down. But, um, you know, basically, Suge Knight just once Death Row started succeeding, just shoved Hario aside, you know? I mean, he was in prison, so there wasn't a lot he could do. But much, much later, um, Lydia Harris and Michael Harris both sued Suge Knight and, and Death Row and ended up coming away with a $100 million judgment in their favor, which, of course, Suge was, like, broke by the time this all happened, so they weren't really able to collect, but they were certainly there at the beginning. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, and, and maybe Scott knows too, David Kenner, the the attorney that they shared, and that's how they brokered this arrangement. Wasn't he like a connected lawyer? He was mobbed he, up. Yeah, mobbed he up with a, the New York crime family. Yeah, the Italian mafia in, in New York. Wasn't he representing some of them, or somehow was connected? I think that was an. I think Suge liked. Didn't Suge like to like? No, he loved the, he loved the idea that Kenner had been connected to the Gambinos, I believe, and uh, the Lucchese's yeah, and Genovese, the New York mob guys. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you guys know more about Kenner's backstory than I do. I mean, Kenner is an absolutely fascinating figure because it, he was not just a lawyer for long. He became, like, seriously enmeshed in the, the music business. He was, like, I, I heard that he had, he, one of, he, Harry O set him up with one of his ex-girlfriends. He was, like, living in these palatial mansions and... Everyone, he is widely accused of being in a lot of dirty business with death row. But at the same time, he got Snoop Dogg off his murder charges. He was an absolute magician as a lawyer. So let's talk about now, you know, the death row is established. Uh, the Chronic comes out. This is the late winter, early spring of 92. Would that be correct? Yeah, the, the end of 92, yeah. Or end of 92. And it, you know, in my opinion, um, you can't overstate how pivotal the release of the chronic was. And in my opinion, that was the dam breaking and hip hop music, rap music going from a niche or a genre of music to becoming mainstream music. Uh, yeah. Would you say that's accurate? And can you kind of speak on how how influential the release of the Chronic was, which was Dr. Dre's uh, solo album? Absolutely. This was kind of the height of MTV, and NWA was not really on MTV hardly at all. But you couldn't. You mean uh, you couldn't make? You really couldn't make videos to go along with those songs. Yeah, so they, extreme. They tried it with uh, "Express Yourself," yeah. which was like their only song that didn't really have a ton of misogynistic right. uh, uh, lyrics and swear words and n words. Right. Uh, they they had such a a, um, a repertoire that, w despite their massive uh, following and and influence, it was difficult to market them on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and there was it was hypocritical too by MTV and a lot of the labels because they had hair metal, uh, you know, and what was like more misogynistic than that? But <laughs> for some reason, they they drew the line. But um, yeah, the Chronic was just um, they they did market research and it was the same people who was buying that as were buying Guns and Roses, buying Aerosmith. Again, it's all like you said, the, a, a lot of crossover and. And Dre was bringing up this this young star, Snoop Dogg, and you know, uh, Snoop Dogg was is almost on the chronic as much as Dre is. Not to mention ghostwriting a lot of it. Um, so it was kind of like the mainstreaming of a couple fairly underground themes at the time. And I guess gang culture is one, and marijuana is the other. You know, you didn't hear the term the chronic, or at least we didn't in my high school before that. Um, but the ironic thing is that, like, Dre was not a gang member or into gangs at all, and he wasn't into marijuana at all either. He he had written this song when he was younger called um, Gang Bang You're Dead, which was about how gangs are terrible and that anyone who is smart should stay away from them. 
And then on Express Yourself, the NWA yeah. song from 1988, he has this song about uh, how he doesn't, or the line about how he doesn't smoke weed or cess because it's known to give a brother brain damage. So, you know, you really have to give Snoop Dogg the credit for these, for these themes because Snoop was a Long Beach Crip. You know, he was only 19 years old at the time, and he was really heavy in the game. And, of course, he was a big weed smoker, and he kind of brought this lifestyle to Dre. And, you know, that's what Dre does. He, he absorbs other people's stories and other people's sort of sounds and their personas and crafts it into something that's mainstream palatable, and that's what he did on The Chronic. If I can uh, uh, touch upon that, bring it back to the, the Underworld conversation, uh, I teach a course, Gangs and Organized Crime, and my students, if they're writing about the, the Bloods and the Crips, they cite Ben's book uh, quite often. And you talk about this delicate balance at death row where Suge is uh, affiliated with the Bloods, and yet you have Snoop and the Dog Pound, and these guys are Long Beach uh, Crips, and that this was a, a, a delicate balance behind the scenes. <laughs> of uh, uh, Suge and, and Dre trying to manage these different uh, personalities and backgrounds and gang affiliations. Can you, can you talk about that? I mean, that's something that people don't realize, I think. The thing was that when it came to come to these Long Beach guys, so Long, Long Beach and Compton are adjacent, right? But in some ways they couldn't be their worlds apart with these different gang cultures. And even within the Crips, there's all these different subsets. And like Snoop, you'll always see him wearing um, Steelers gear, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so he'll say that it's because he loved those old Steelers 70s teams, and, and maybe he did. But also it's because his like Crips subset has the, the black and yellow colors. And, um, and, and meanwhile, Suge Knight, like you said, is affiliating with all these bloods. And and these bloods are not like music industry people, you know, um, like Snoop and Nate Dogg and Warren G. These guys are all like, you know, diehard musicians first. But these guys that Snoop is bringing along, or excuse me, that Suge is bringing along, these are more like his friends. Uh, some of them are kind of like bodyguards, protection. He wants this image as of Death Row as sort of like the hardest um, most unfuckwithable uh, <laughs> label in the business. And he, these guys are part of it. But the problem is that these guys aren't really doing anything other than causing trouble. And, and, and all, they almost single-handedly drive Dre out of Death Row Records altogether. And Snoop Dogg is, is, is more on Dre's side of it. You know, he's, he's like, why does he want to go into the studio? There's all these like antagonistic you know, bloods who aren't really doing anything, sort of taking up space everywhere. Yeah, um, and it's it's also interesting uh, from what I understand that, you know, it's, from my understanding, it, it's not even like uh, Suge was like this Al Capone shot caller that, that a lot of these street blood guys, they, they viewed their relationship with Suge like, what can he do for me? And so the moment like Suge either can't pay out or things like that, then sometimes he starts getting into trouble with some of these real gangsters. And then that causes some difficulties behind the scenes too, from a business standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah. The Suge story is very much misunderstood. Um, and along those same lines, I mean, maybe I'm advancing the timeline a little bit, but when Tupac comes on the scene, there's this sort of widespread belief that, Tupac was this kind of more humble, sort of less gang-affiliated, conscious rapper before Suge Knight got his hooks into him, and he turned him into this kind of bloodthirsty gangster. And I don't think that's true either, because what really happened was that Tupac, when he was in prison, uh, this was right after he'd been non-fatally shot in 1994 at Quad Studios in New York, and he came to believe that that Biggie Smalls, Notorious B.I.G., and his label owner, Puff Daddy, were, were either behind the shooting or they knew about it and didn't tell him. So Tupac was, like, enraged, and he was on the war path, and he asked Suge Knight to come along with him on this, basically, vendetta against uh, Biggie. 
And this is what started the East Coast, West Coast War. And so when you think about all the violence, all the gang affiliation that is part of that, that wasn't really Shug. In fact, it, it was more that Tupac kind of convinced Shug to come ride along on his, on his war. If you were going to slice up a pie, what percentage of that pie would be Tupac? Because I, I just, you know, by the way, R.I.P. Tupac, it's his birthday today. That's right. He would be 50 years old. Um, he is the to greatest, me, the goat. He's, to me, he's the goat. Yeah. Uh, greatest, agree, 100%. <laughs> greatest rapper of all time. Uh, and, and it, it really blows your mind. If you think of what we've lost here in the last 20, he's been dead 25 years. We, it, it, if you could just, I, I can't imagine what he would have accomplished in these last 25 years. And I think it would have far exceeded the hip hop game and the rap world. Um, I think he probably would have won an Oscar by now. Uh, he would be, I think, uh, vertically integrated business-wise. He'd be a voice. I mean, a real influential voice. He'd be like Tup- uh, He'd be like Snoop Dogg, but but more politically yeah. and socially woke. Yeah. Um, so I just think it was such a, a, a such a tragic loss in so many ways. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but um, how much if you Excuse me. We'll cut this out. Uh, <clears throat> I want the water went down a, a wrong pipe. Uh, how much if you were going to cut up a pie? Because uh, I think Tupac was a brilliant businessman or or had the potential to be a brilliant businessman. How much do you think the East Coast, West Coast rap war was authentic? And how much of it was on the artist part to try to develop this narrative which would allow them to sell records because i do believe let me just preface this with i do believe that the east coast west coast war was not made up for the tabloids i mean it there was serious animosity and 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 contentious um situations that were developing around multiple artists if you go to my website gangster report you can see a uh, an East Coast, West Coast rap war murder timeline where you have like 10 to, I think, 15 people that have that have been probably been killed in a 10-year in a span uh, because of, of that rivalry. But how much of it was real and how much of it was created to sell, to sell records? I think, I mean, maybe 90% was real and like maybe 90% of it was Tupac, you know? I think like, the East Coast, West Coast uh, dispute, conflict, war, whatever you want to call it, is a little bit of a misnomer, first of all, because it's not like Seattle or Florida had anything to do with it, right? It was New York versus L.A. It was big uh, bad boy records versus death row. And really, it wasn't even in most people on death row, for example. It, like Snoop wanted nothing to do with it. Dr. Dre wanted nothing to do with it. Tupac tried to get like the lady and the lady of rage to beef with little Kim and she wanted nothing to do with it. It was big. I sometimes call it like Tupac's war of Western aggression, you know, <laughs> big, like Biggie wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, Biggie kind of half-heartedly came back with some songs that were kind of vague. Yeah, they should they should have never released Who Shot Ya. And you can you can sit there as Puffy Combs and be like, oh, well, we didn't write that in response. But nonetheless, you released it at a time where everyone was going to assume that you wrote it about the the beef and it just escalated things. Yeah, exactly. And and Puffy said some things like he's like, when a real gangsters come for you, you're not gonna know it. You're just gonna wake up and be in heaven and stuff like that. But it was all sort of vague and Anyone who really talked to Biggie about it at the time knew that he just wanted it to be over. You know, Tupac, um, everything you said about him is absolutely true. He was this incredible multifaceted person, but he had been, you know, he'd grown up with nothing. He'd grown up like with bullies and he was kind of a nerd, kind of a hippie and people would make fun of him. He was kind of effeminate. You look at interviews of him when he's 15, 16 years old and you could you know, make the argument that, you know, he was a, he was kind of metrosexual. I'm not put, casting judgment on that, but if you look at, you know, his persona from let's say the 18 to 24, when he got killed, it was like, uh, you know, alpha dog on steroids. Yeah. If you listen to those, um, like North Bay sort of Marin County 
recordings when he was about 18. He sounds like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I mean, that's what was popular then. And he also had some more some more conscious songs, and then he got in with uh, Digital Underground. But but the point is, he'd been bullied for so much of his life. He was like dirt poor with his family, and um, he this was a reflection of that. You know, now he had the power, now he had the fame. He he wasn't a gang member, but he wanted to have gang backing because it made him feel stronger and. And the thing with uh, with Biggie was just this huge, elaborate, sort of egotistical power play. He did, you know, he did not have concrete evidence that Biggie had anything to do with him getting shot. I mean, he he was like a mentor to Biggie. A lot of people don't realize that too. Like Tupac was famous first, and Biggie was trying to ride on his coattails. In fact, as I reported in, in uh, Original Gangsters. Um, Biggie asked him to be his manager, you know, but Tupac said, no, let, let Puffy do it. And then the idea that this guy who he'd helped so much may have had something to do with him getting shot was just like set Tupac off. And ultimately that's what led to his death. So in your opinion, who killed Tupac? Will we ever see charges brought? Uh, it's a two-part question. Will we ever see charges brought in either the homicide of, of uh, Tupac Shakur or Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Uh, Notorious Big? Well, to answer the first question, the second question, no, I, we're not going to see charges brought. It's it's too late. Almost everyone is, that's important is dead. And um, in terms of who did it, I subscribe to what I call the Occam's Razor theory of Tupac's murder and Biggie's murder, for that matter. And Occam's razor, meaning the most likely sensible logical answer is probably the real one. And so at the MGM Grand that night, the night of the Tyson fight, the night that Tupac was fatally shot, they they ran into these Compton Crips and they beat up a guy in the MGM right there while the cameras were rolling, this guy named Orlando Anderson. And Tupac kind of initiated it and Suge Knight was stomping on him. And then... Orlando Anderson, you know, who just happened to be in town too for the Tyson fight, went back and met up with the guys he came with. And then they came in, in the car and they found the car that Tupac and Suge were in. And they, and from that car came the bullets that killed Tupac. Now, I'm not positive it was Orlando Anderson himself who fired the bullets. Um, I, I, for the most part, subscribe to the theory by LAPD detective Greg Kading who has a book called Murder Rap about this that's really good. And he got the testimony, he got a guy to flip, who is Orlando Anderson's uncle named Keefe D, who was also in the car that night. And, and Keefe D, you know, was busted for this big PCP ring. And so to he, he agreed to give his testimony in order to reduce his sentence. And he blamed Orlando Anderson, his nephew, the only problem with that is that Orlando Anderson was already dead. And so it's quite possible. And that fact, I think it's fairly likely that it was someone else in the car who actually pulled the trigger. But I definitely think it was someone in that car. And, and Pac, I'm going way inside baseball here. And Pac, when the fight broke out at the casino, Pac was, Pac was on parole. So he needed to, um, right? He, yeah, he was, uh, his bail was on, uh, his, he was out on bail, basically. Right, so yeah. he, he so couldn't. He could not control, have been yeah. linked to that. So I know he rushed off uh, from the scene uh, and went back to his room, which I, which I think was at the Luxor uh, that he was sharing with uh, Kadada Jones, and changed clothes and was going to the um, House of Blues and, and was murdered. Uh, so my final question, then I'll hand it over to JB to close it out, would be: Let's just play the game and say that Tupac isn't murdered and. Uh, September of 1996. What happens with him and Suge Knight and Death Row Records going forward? Because there was a lot of rumors that uh, he was on the verge of leaving and that uh, uh, Suge Knight owed him a lot of uh, royalty money and so forth and so forth. Yeah, he definitely owed him a lot of money. And there were there were reports that he wanted to get rid of David Kenner. I think that I believe more, you know, but even doing that would have been a huge thing. Kenner was running everything, like we were saying. I'm not convinced he would have left Death Row, you know, right then. I think him and he and Shug really were tight. 
I think um, it, the financial stuff could have flared up in the future for sure. I mean, Suge was not paying him what he was owed. So I don't think it would have ended happily either way. Let me, um, as we're closing on here, uh, rapid fire. No honorable mentions, Bernie. I know you with your list. <laughs> one, only one fa- favorite West Coast gangster rap song of all time. Mine is Murder Rap Above the Law. What's Bernie? What's yours? And then we'll have our guest give his. What's your favorite? Just one. You know, honestly, this is going to be a total, well, probably my favorite West Coast hip-hop song is probably Is It Funky Enough by D.O.C. Yeah, that's a good But I almost feel guilty not throwing out a Tupac song because Tupac is, in my opinion, the greatest of all time. So I'll also say uh, Bury Me a G by by Tupac. Okay. How about you, Ben? (laughs) Oh god, this is awful. I don't know. <laughs> I would I would have to say uh I I would just say what's my name by Snoop just because that was I was at the age when that I was just ready to hear that and it kind of changed everything for me. Um all right, good choices this guys. Great. This was a great interview. So uh uh benwestoff.com is where you can find out about Ben's speaking engagements, his books. We didn't even get into Fentanyl Inc, which is uh a huge book, uh, very influential out there right now. It, it's you know, we talk about drug trafficking and things like that on this show a lot. So hopefully Ben, um, you'll, you'll come back on and we could talk about that. Um, I'm going to try to, uh, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to try to subscribe to the drugs and hip hop newsletter. Are you still publishing that? No, I just finished it. Uh, oh man. Do you have it archived? Can we, can someone like archived? Yeah. It's at just, uh, benwestoff.substack.com. Okay. But if you just uh, Google my name, you'll 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 find your way there. Okay. So, do you want to uh, tell us about anything? Uh, promote any future projects you have coming up that you think our audience would uh, find interesting before we sign off? Well, right now I'm just working on the Fentanyl Inc. screenplay. It's going to be like a feature film adaptation of uh, my time infiltrating Chinese drug labs, and that's what happens in fentanyl ink. So that's my main thing, but that's not, doesn't it's very far from a release date. So, um, are you able to share with us like who's behind that, like production company and things like that? Well, it's a uh, brawn pictures. So B R O N. So yeah, they're that's major players right now. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, plenty of movies don't get made. So I'm just hoping that this one actually does. Okay, well, thanks again, Ben. People, please buy the book, uh, Original Gangsters. Uh, we love it. It's it's my favorite book about music. I know Scott has read a lot of books about music. We we read books about different genres and music, and it's definitely my favorite book. I mean, I put this and um, Nothing But a Good Time, which just came out recently, of uh, uh, oh, oral, hi- oral, oral history of the L.A. glam yeah. scene or L.A. 80s hair, uh, hair metal scene. That and this, my two favorite uh, uh, music books of all time yeah so please people buy the book buy fentanyl inc and uh, hopefully we'll have ben uh, on uh, again thanks again ben well it was great talking to you guys i really appreciate it thanks Ben. yeah good luck and uh, thanks to everyone for listening to the original gangsters podcast uh, please follow us on twitter and like us on facebook and on uh, instagram and please subscribe and share and that way we can keep on bringing you great content i'm jimmy bucciolato I'm Scott Bernstein. Peace.